All right. Well, we're really, really excited about the series that we're kicking off today. It's called Love Like This. Would you all say love like this on the count of three? One, two, three. Love like this. Good. And as we start out our time today, I want you to uh, actually turn to the people around you. We're going to have a short conversation as we kick off our time. I want you to answer this question and share your answer with the people around you. What did you want to do? What did you want to do when you grow, grew up? What, what was the job you wanted to have? What was the dream thing you wanted to do when you uh, became an adult? So when you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? Turn around to the people next to you and share what that thing was. What did you want to do when you were growing Growing up. At home, make sure you participate as well. What did you want to do when you grew up? All right, that's great. Hey, uh, go ahead and yell out a couple of responses. What did you want to do when you grew up? Somebody yell something out. What did you want to do? Right here, what did you want to do when you grew up? Yeah. Zoologist. All right. You want to be a zoologist over here. What did you want to do when you grew up? What did you want to be a teacher? That's awesome. We love teachers. What did you want to do when you grew up? Right there. What do you want to do? An ice cream truck driver. That's the dream. High standards. I love that. All right. One more. One more. What did you want to do? Somewhere over in this area. What did you want to do when you grew up? Go ahead. Right here. Right here. What did you want to do? You want to be a doctor. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a professional basketball player, all right? When you were, when I was a kid in like in elementary school, they'd have you fill out like those little forms about what you want to do when you grow up. I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I wanted to play in the NBA, and I was committed to this. I remember every Sunday afternoon, uh, there would be games on NBC. We didn't have cable, so I had to wait till Sunday to watch games, and there'd be a featured game on NBC on Sunday. I'd watch the first half of the game and watch my favorite players. So I was a big Jordan fan, of course, right? A huge Penny Hardaway fan. He was like my hero right here in Orlando. And whenever there was a game, I would watch until halftime. I would go outside and I would just practice the moves that I saw my heroes uh, do in the game. Then I'd rush back inside, sopping, you know, with sweat, coming out of the Florida heat. And I'd continue to watch the game until it ended. Then I'd go back out Outside and I would play until it got dark outside or my mom kind of pulled me into the house. I love the game. I'd have a ball in the house. I'd be dribbling it around the house. I'd get yelled at for that. I'd take a ball into my room and I'd lay down at night and I'd just throw the ball up like this, like practicing my shot, elbow in, flick of the wrist. Like I was committed to the game. I got to travel and play. I loved the game. I mean, I even practiced, I don't know if anybody else did this, if you wanted to be a professional athlete, did anybody practice their signature when they were growing up as a kid? Man, I used to just practice my signature over and over and over again with my number, number one, like Penny, because I was number one. Like, I just, I did everything, right? And then, like, as time began to, you know, develop, it became very clear that my childhood dream was not going to come to pass because, uh, well, when I was a senior in high school, I was six foot, one inches, and a whopping 135 pounds, and I was eating 5,000 calories a day trying to put on weight. And my friends that uh, began to play at a higher level, they began to surpass me. And so I knew pretty, pretty quickly that the end of the road for me was going to be high school basketball. And so I soaked up every moment of it. As kids, we all have a dream of what we're going to do when we grow up. And sometimes that dream comes to pass. Other times that dream, it doesn't come to pass. 
But there's a deeper question I want to ask you today as we kind of lean into this series. Not what did you want to do when you were a kid, but who did you want to be when you were a kid? What were the kinds of personality traits or character traits that you wanted to have as a person? I, I know this about me, that, that it was one thing to let the dream die about being a professional basketball player and to find a new dream, a new thing that I became passionate about. But there's something that happens in us over time where, where we have this vision of who we're going to be as adults, how we're going to act, how we're going to live, what's going to be true about us. And, and when we become adults, some of those things come to fruition, but, but other things, they, they don't necessarily come to fruition. Like, have you ever had this moment as an adult where you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I am just like my mother, or I am just like my father, and you made a vow that you would never be like your mother or father? Anybody had that moment before? Uh, it hit me as a parent. My dad used to do this thing when I was a kid uh, where if you left a light on, he would call your name. It was so frustrating. He would call your name if you left a light on or if you left the cabinet open. No matter where you were, he'd stand there, he'd yell out your name, and you'd have to walk from wherever you were to the place that he was. He would point at the light switch. You'd have to turn it off. He'd point at the cabinet, and you'd have to slam it. Again, this is why I'm in therapy, all right? Like this is, this is a part of it, right? And I remember vowing to myself, I'm never going to be like that when I'm an adult. I'm never going to be like that when I'm a parent. Because just, just close the cabinet, man. Just turn off the light. We're human beings. I'm not Jesus. I'm not going to get it right every time. That's the way that I thought as a kid. And then I find myself as a dad now being so perturbed by two things in my life. One is the incapacity of some people in my home. I'm not naming names. My wife, I, I am so <laughs> perturbed by the reality that cabinets remain open and that light switches are not turned off. I find myself saying things like, we're wasting money, we're wasting electricity, come and turn the lights off. And I promise you, every single person in my home has found me standing at a light switch pointing at it like this, like it happens. Who did you want to be, who did you want to be when you grew up? I think what's interesting is that, is that change, who we become, change, it's, it's this thing that we long for. It's a, it's a whole industry that people write books in and put on seminars and conferences for. Change. We all want to, to change, don't we? But at some point in our life, we kind of come to the conclusion that maybe change isn't possible. Maybe I am just the way that I am. Maybe this is just the way that things are going to be. That anger issue, it's it's never going to really go away. That, that habit that I can't seem to kick, it's probably never going to go away. That addiction that, that lets me cope with the difficulty of life, I don't know if I'm going to get past that. That insecurity that I'm carrying, it's probably just always going to be there, right? How do I really change? Maybe I can't change at all. And that's the question that I think we're going to look at today. Is it possible to change? Is it possible to become the person we always dreamed that maybe we could be? Or maybe even deeper than that, is it possible to become the person that God has declared that we could be? Is it possible? Or are we just stuck as we are? Hey, man, that's my Enneagram type. I'm always going to be this way. Hey, I'm Italian. That's the way it's always going to be. Hey, this is just the way that things are. Or is it possible to change? Is it, is it possible to become a person that's free from that anger issue or 
free from that habit or free from that addiction? Is it possible to actually change? I have become addicted to the process of change. How do people grow and mature? And what I might lay before you, what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, which I'm really keying up today, the whole concept of this series, Love Like This, is built on this idea, this thesis, if you will, that the primary way we become who God meant us to be is by allowing his love to change us. Let me say that one more time, and you can write it down in your notes. The primary way we become who God meant us to be is by allowing his love to change us. Now, in that thesis, I'm, I'm making an argument here. And part of the argument that I'm making is that it can be quite possible to be a Christian. It can be quite possible to spend decades of your life following Jesus and doing Christian things and, and not allow God's love to change you. To actually resist the mechanism that God utilizes in our life to help us become who he always said we could be. That it could be possible to not understand God's love. And because we don't understand it, not know how to receive it or experience it. And because we don't know how to experience God's love, not become the people God imagined and dreamed we could be. That God actually uses his love as an agent of change in our life. In this series, we're going to ask questions like, what does it mean to be loved by God? What does that really mean beyond the kind of cute, kind of fanciful language of God loves you? What does it really mean to be loved by God? And how does that love actually affect my life? Uh, to do that, we're going to be studying the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John is an incredible letter written by the Apostle John. And in this book, we're going to find that love is the key that unlocks your life. That love, in many ways, is the gift we can give others to help them change as well. And what I love about 1 John is that, that it talks about love in a way that, man, it just comes alive if you allow it to speak to you. And John, the writer, he's, he's a person who's with, worth listening to. Because John will also make the argument that it is impossible for us. It is really impossible for us to change and love less environments. That if I don't know how to receive God's love, and if I don't know how to extend God's life, love, I will not see the change in my life that God has said is possible. And I might not be able to see that change in the people around me. First John is a powerful, powerful text. Uh, he writes things like this in First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John wants us, and what we'll do over this summer, is identify and understand what it really means to be loved. How can we experience a love like this? And how can we extend a love like this? And wouldn't we agree that we live in a world right now where change is necessary, where change needs to happen, wouldn't you say in your marriage that change might be a good thing? Some of you are like, yeah, he really needs to change. Well, hold on, hold on. But wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it be good if we could overcome that thing that keeps on holding us back or get past that barrier that, that seems to stop us from stepping into what we know God has called us to do? What I love about 1 John is that it's not just flowery, flowery language and kind of, you know, written in this kind of high level of poetic way and by this guy who doesn't really know what love is. In fact, John, the guy that writes this letter, he was actually directly transformed by 
God's love. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is how he opens up the letter. These are the verses we'll look at today. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The first four verses of this book allow us to understand John's purpose and intent for the letter. John wants us to understand that the relationship that he's had with Jesus, who he's seen, who he's heard, and who he's touched, that is the framework by which everything he's about to write is shaped by. It's because of his personal experience with Jesus that John writes this letter. It's not out of the, the, you know, a theory or a perspective. It's out of real life experience. What I love about John is this guy, this guy was transformed by Jesus' love. And at the end of his life, when he's looking back on his life, he writes for us this first-hand account of what it looks like to be loved by God and to give that love to others. Which means if you're a skeptic or if you're unsure about Christian faith or you're maybe not even sold with the Bible, you should really lean in over the next couple of weeks because John isn't a guy who lived decades after Jesus and didn't have kind of a connection with him. John is a guy who walked with Jesus for three years and was an eyewitness. He is living proof that God's love has the power to change us. John, John was one of Jesus' closest friends. It was Peter, James, and John, the three closest with Jesus. John started following Jesus between the ages of 13 and 16, scholars tell us. So he was a young, a high school-aged young man when he started following Jesus. And, and Jesus entrusted John with levels of closeness and connectivity that not everybody else had. John was the one responsible to take care of Jesus' mother when Jesus was on the cross. He looks at John, he says, son, behold your mother. And Mary moves in with John, and John takes care of his mama. John was uh, with Jesus in the earliest days of ministry and had some particular moments. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes to pray and he's got this anxiety about him, about what's going to happen at the cross. You know who's right there at a front, with the front seat? John. John is the guy who has the closest vantage point into the life of Jesus that we have in history. And this guy, this guy had full access to Jesus' life, which means whatever he wrote, he could have written. And if he had some, you know, some, some, some skeletons in the closet, if Jesus was a little bit off or Jesus had some weird idiosyncrasies, you know who would know it? It would be John. Like John would be the guy that would be the source material for any documentary about Jesus. He'd be the source material for any, you know, podcast about Jesus. You guys ever, like, listen to those, like, expose, tell-all podcasts, right? And it's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that person was that way. That's John, all right? John is the guy who's got a front row seat to Jesus. And what we find, what we find in John's life is, is that when he writes about Jesus in the Gospel of John, and when he talks about Jesus' love in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and when he writes even the book of Revelation, John wrote five of the New Testament books that we have, there's a common thread that you see in John's life. And it's the characteristic, and it's the nature of love. Which begs the question, was John just always like this? 
Was John just always like a, a guy that loved love? Not at all. Uh, the man that John became is not where John began. I think it's very, very important for us to understand who is writing the letter we're going to study over the next couple of weeks. Because when he talks about love, he's not just talking about love from a theoretical perspective, but from a transformative, personal one. And let me tell you, John was not the guy you would assume was all about love in the early days. Uh, John was way more, I like to put it this way, John was way more like Cobra Kai than he was Miyagi-Do, like if that makes sense, right? Like John was, John was one of those guys that's like, he, he was quick to fly off the handle. He was, he was quick to, you know, like swing first, ask questions later. John was rough around the edges. He was tough. He was not the guy you would expect to be the one talking about love as much as John was. In fact, John, John was a guy that had an anger issue. John was angry. In Luke chapter 9, uh, we find this. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, and as he's heading into Jerusalem, they're going to find a city where Jesus can kind of rest and kind of take a deep breath, maybe get a rest stop, if you will. And we find this in verse 51, that as time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to head to the cross, and he sent messengers ahead to the Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Anybody think, oh, that's a loving guy? Like, no, right? Like, I love this about John. John has spent two and a half years with Jesus. And when somebody doesn't allow them to stay at their quote-unquote inn or stay in their town, the first response from James and John after two and a half years with Jesus is not, all right, let's go to the next town. It was, let it burn. Like that is John. John is an angry dude. John is rough around the edges. It says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. And I just can imagine, like, John's like, listen, man, I've seen you, like, you know, like, walk on water. I've seen you feed thousands of people. You kind of actually gave us a little bit of power. Jesus, I've really been wanting to do this. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Let me do it. And, John's, and, and Jesus is like, no. John was angry. Let me ask you this. Are you, do you struggle with an anger problem? Like, do you find yourself flying off the handle in ways you promised yourself you never would as an adult? Do you find yourself saying, wow, that escalated quickly when you snap in the midst of an argument? Maybe your anger isn't a, a blow-up anger because you're yelling at your kids or because you're, you know, honking your horn while you're driving on I-4, which is justified. Like, maybe, maybe that's not where you are, but maybe it's like a seething anger. Like, it's just underneath the surface. And the reason why you're addicted to the bottle or the reason why you're addicted to the prescriptions or prescription medication that you know you don't actually need, the reason why you, you kind of cope with, you know, that kind of escape is because is you're actually just angry. And you don't know how that anger plays itself out in terms of a, a, a you know, verbal way, but it, it just sits underneath. I want you to know the guy who wrote the letter of 1 John who talks about love and how love can change you he was an angry dude, too. He was angry. But not only was John angry, John was ambitious. Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, again, on the way to Jerusalem, we have this really interesting uh, kind of vignette of the way that Jesus relates to, to John. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 22 says this, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who Jesus also nicknamed, so you know, the sons of thunder, which gives you a sense of just how wild John was, came to Jesus with her sons. 
and she knelt respectively to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? So, so imagine you're Jesus for a moment. Uh, you're heading in towards Jerusalem. Uh, you've just dealt with John saying, can we call down fire from heaven and burn up these people that, you know, won't let us stay with you? As they're continuing towards Jerusalem again, as they're still heading towards that way, Jesus has on his mind a cross. Jesus has on his mind the Father turning his back on him. Jesus has on his mind the reality that he's going to go pay for the entire sin and brokenness and pain and guilt and shame of the world. And as all of this is happening, John and James kind of lean over to their mom and they're like, hey, mom, why don't you go talk to Jesus about where we're going to stand in kind of the hierarchy when all this stuff is said and done? Because John wasn't thinking that Jesus was headed to a cross. John thought that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to go and kick out Rome. And in a lot of ways, young John was looking at what Jesus had accomplished and done in life and said, man, if I can just get on the ground floor level of Jesus, if I could just be around Jesus when every, before anyone else was, if I can get in early, maybe I'll get a position of power. See, John was nothing more than a fisherman and came from a fisherman's family. And now all of a sudden Jesus is rising in fame and everybody's following him and thousands of people are crowding around him whenever he teaches. And John has been there from the beginning. And now they're going to the epicenter. They're going to Jerusalem where the party's about to go down. And John just wants to make sure that his investment in Jesus over the last couple of years is going to multiply into a position of power when it really counts. And so they send mama to go talk to Jesus, because that's what everybody does, right? If you're a club coach, you know, you send mama, right? If it's an extracurricular, you, mama talks first, right? Because it doesn't seem as messed up if it's mama. And she goes to, to remind Jesus of just how much James and John have sacrificed for, for Jesus. So surely John's gonna, Jesus is going to let John be on the right and James on the left, right? The two positions of power, right, Jesus? Ambition. Are you a little ambitious? Like, is there... A, a little part inside of you that just wants more? Like isn't, isn't content with what you have? Just, just a little bit more money? Just a little bit more influence? Just a little bit of a better title? Is there a part of you at work when you see somebody get promoted, you think, I don't know if they should have got that promotion. I think there was a more qualified candidate that could have taken on that role. Maybe your ambition doesn't work itself out in work. It works itself out in your kids. They've got to get on this team. They've got to play at this level. They need to get into that college. And what can we do or say or how can we manipulate the system? Because, gosh, isn't everybody doing it? So, so we spend so much time and so much energy trying to get ahead just a little bit more. And it just gets exhausting. But we don't know how to get off the crazy wheel of ambition, do we? Well, love can transform a person. And John, who writes the letter of 1 John, you need to hear this, he was an ambitious man too. And if you find yourself in a place of ambition, John knows what it's like to be there. John knows what it feels like to to want to know where you stand on the hierarchy or where you're going to be on the corporate ladder, where the next check is going to come from or what the next house is going to be or how people perceive or think of you. John wants power. John wants influence. John wants security. And he wants to know that his choice to follow Jesus is going to pay off for him in the long run. And let's be honest. If you would say, I'm not ambitious at all, isn't there a part of us 
as followers of Jesus that want to at least say, God, at least let me follow, let, let the fact that I'm following you pay off for me in the long run. Would you do something for my kids, my friends, for me? John knows what it's like to be ambitious. Beyond that, though, not only is John ambitious, uh, but John was also arrogant, like incredibly arrogant. Uh, Jesus, uh, in response to this requ- request that, you know, John be on the right and, you know, James be on the left, Jesus says, well, how do you believe that you can drink from the cup of suffering that I will drink from? And he says this in Matthew uh, chapter 20. Uh, Jesus uh, says, do you believe that you can drink from the cup of suffering? And then James and John say, yes, we believe that we can. Does anybody think that's pretty arrogant? <laughs> hey, Jesus, I've seen you at work, and uh, I think I'm pretty much as good as you are. Verse 20, oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say we'll sit on my right or my left. My father's prepared those places for those he has chosen. And I love this. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were, what's the word here? They were indignant. They were livid. They were upset. They're like, John, again, man? Gosh, you're always angling. You're so ambitious. You're so arrogant. You think that you're better than everybody else. Why are you the way that you are, John? And in case you think John maybe like got past that and never was arrogant again, when John writes the, his account in the Gospel of John about how he and Jesus were you know, uh, doing ministry together, when Jesus resurrects, John tells the story of the resurrection, and he says that he beat Peter in a race to the tomb. And that's later on in life, all right? Just goes to show you never actually get fully past some stuff, right? Like, how petty is that? John's like, all right, let me think about the resurrection. Jesus rose. What's really important information to be included in this account that will be read for all of human history and time? Oh, yeah, I, I beat Peter. Like, that, that's so petty, right? But that's John. John's angry. John's a little ambitious. John's a little bit arrogant. He, he, he thinks kind of higher of himself than maybe he ought to. He thinks he deserves a little bit more than maybe he ought to deserve. Can you resonate with that? Are there places in your life where you're like, man, I just wish I wasn't as angry. I don't know how to deal with this ambition that that keeps me going every day, but it seems like every time I get what I thought I wanted, all of a sudden I need something more. Or maybe arrogance. Oh, I don't know if I'm arrogant. It's like, ah, if you don't think you're arrogant, you probably are, right? Like, that, that's kind of how that works. Comparing ourselves to others, thinking that we should be in a different place. And what I love about John is that we get to see a picture of John in his teens, his 20s, his 30s, his 40s, his 50s. And then we get to fast forward to this time when 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are written. These three letters that John writes. And when John writes these letters, the interesting thing is that John has a lot of the things that John thought he wanted when he was younger. See, the context of 1 John that we're going to read together and study together as a community is, finds John in a position of influence and power. He's the bishop of the church at Ephesus, meaning he leads a, a set of churches across the city. A good way to think about it is like John. John is like one of the first multi-site church pastors like ever. And if you're like, oh, multi-site's bad, it's like, well, take it up with the Bible, bro. They've been doing it for a while, all right? So, so John is overseeing a number of churches in the city of Ephesus, and they each have their own pastors, and John's the senior leader. And, and what happens is, is a couple people get upset with John in these churches, 
And they start breaking off, and they start slandering John. They start talking about how John isn't fit to lead, and, and they basically begin to reject his leadership. And this is John 40 years, 50 years after his time with Jesus. And you would imagine that in a moment like this, John, who's angry, and John, who's ambitious, and John, who's arrogant, would pick up a pen, and he would, he would start writing about how incredible he is. He would remind people of his resume. He would lay out what, what miracles he's done, how he's impacted the world, how he was Jesus' best friend. He might call some people out by name. You would expect the arrogant, angry, ambitious guy to not be okay with all of these people rejecting his leadership, turning on him, and creating division in the churches, right? But instead, the first thing that John writes is this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. The first thing from John's pen, as he writes the church-wide email that everybody's going to get as this letter gets disseminated out, the first thing that John says is he gives the message that's going to be broadcast to all of the campuses is not, I'm going to call these people out, I'm going to raise my voice, I'm going to be arrogant, angry, or ambitious. No, the first thing out of John's mouth is, we should love one another. John talks about love in 1 John more than pretty much any letter in the New Testament. 17 times we see love as a key theme in these five short chapters. And in fact, church history tells us that John became so in love with love and the concept of love that in his old, old age, after he is no longer in the position as the bishop, old, old man, you know, like the old people, like when they talk, they tell the same stories over and over again, and you just pretend like you've heard it for the first time, like that, that level of old. When John cannot walk, but is literally picked up and carried into church services in Ephesus. Uh, the church theologian Th Jerome says this, that, that John used to be carried into the congregation in the arms of his disciples and was unable to say anything except little children, at the end of his age, little children, love one another. And at last, wary that he always spoke the same words, the people in the church asked, Master, why do you always say this? And look at John's words. Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. Which begs this question. How did angry ambitious, and arrogant John become kind, compassionate, and caring John. And I would submit to you this, that a lifetime of letting Jesus love you will soften your heart and redirect your ambition. Because not only was John angry, not only was John ambitious, not only was John arrogant, but write this down, this is the last one, John was loved. John was loved. Five times in the Gospel of John, when John refers to himself in the story, he says, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. See, there was, a, there was a moment in John's life when John stopped defining himself as John the Apostle. John, the guy who had a front row seat to all of the miracles of Jesus. John, the bishop and leader of the multi-site church in Ephesus. John, the, the father of the early church who uh, led the theological training of two of the most important theological um, leaders in church history. 
John, who had a front row seat to all that God did, John didn't define himself by the things he did or by his past or by his power or by his influence. John's root and core identity, the way that he saw himself, was as a man loved by God. And listen to me. When you begin to root your identity as a person in primarily and firstly being loved by God, when you can say, I am loved by God and know what that means, not just an idea or a concept, but a lived out experience, a reality that you're in. I am loved by God. That's when your life begins to change. It's when it moves from a theoretical reality to an experienced one. Because real change is possible when you allow yourself to be loved by God. And 1 John, 1 John is a letter written by a man who allowed himself to be loved by God. And we have the privilege 2,000 years later to pick up this letter that he wrote and to see how love can change us. If I had to put it to you in one simple bottom line, it would be this. The more you learn to let Jesus love you, the more you'll look like the person he made you. And when you realize how much you are loved by God, you can begin to love others like that too. So I don't know what your issue is. For John, it was anger, ambition, and arrogance. Maybe for you, it's insecurity, fear, depression, despair, regret. Maybe it's a worry that will never go away. Maybe it's apathy. Whatever the thing is for you that, that as a kid you never thought would be a part of your life, that part of you that you wish could just change, I want you to know that there is a way in which it does change. And it's by living a lifetime of allowing God to love you. So over the course of this summer, I want to encourage you to read 1 John with that in mind. To allow this study guide to be prepared for you to not just simply be something that sits in your car or on your desk or your kitchen table, but for it to be something that you allow to shape and transform your life because there is a way forward. You don't have to remain the way that you are. Your relationship does not have to remain the way that it is. There is a way forward. Hope is possible. And it's allowing God to love you, to experience that love and extend it to others. So that in mind, would you stand today? As we close out our time, I want to just leave you with one question. No next step today other than make sure you take that First John study and go on this journey with us. But here's the question, every eye closed, every head bowed. Will you let God's love change you? For some of you, the Christian life has been about do's and don'ts, rules and regulations. For others of you, the Christian life has been about obligation and duty. The Christian life has been about thinking, I guess this is the way it's always going to be. I'm always going to be angry, and I'll just have to wait till Jesus comes back. I'm always going to be afraid. I guess I'll just have to wait till Jesus comes back. My marriage is never going to be intimate. It's, we'll just have to wait till Jesus comes back. 
I want you to know that it doesn't have to be that way. That we have living proof in the person of John that the way you started will not have to be the way that you end if you let God's love change you. So here's the question. Will you let him? Will you allow him? This summer, would you allow God's love to meet you? Would you experience it? With that in mind today, as a sign for you and for your heavenly father, as I pray for you, and so I know who I'm praying for, if you would say, I need God's love in my life to change me, I've been running from it, I've been hiding from it, or I don't even know how to experience it. I know what it is in like a theoretical way, but I don't know what it's like to feel that love. I'm gonna ask you to open your hand just so I know who I'm praying for on the count of three. If you'd say, I want God's love to change me this summer and I'm willing to let his love change me. Go ahead and open your hands. One, two, three, let me know if that's you. And as your hands are open today, I wanna lead you through a simple process. For some of you, it's like, God, I want to give you my anger in exchange for your love. As your hand is open, would you think about the thing you want to give God? I want to give you my fear in exchange for your love. I want to give you my regret in exchange for your love. I want to give you my worry in exchange for your love. Father, I pray that as we enter into this summer, that God, our, our walk with you would not take a vacation that we wouldn't check our faith with you at the door over summer, that we would lean in and know that you want to speak to us, that, God, you want to love us, and that change happens through that reality. So, God, give us hearts that are open to do whatever you want to do in us this summer. Prepare us for the ways that you want to walk with us, the ways that you want to change us. And God, we trust that you will do this if it's over the next couple of weeks or if it's the course of a lifetime. God, we believe that your love can change us. We believe that and we trust in that today. In Jesus' name, everybody in this place says, amen.